Forbes India cover story podcast series in association with theindicast.com. Uh, my name is Abhishek and this issue's cover package uh, nibbles on the food industry in India, uh, which has recently been spiced up with the likes of Swiggy, Zomato's, Uber Eats of the world, uh, feasting on the Indian customer. Joining me on the call uh, to talk about the package and uh, promising better use of food funds is uh, Jasodhara Banerjee. Hi, uh, Jasodhara. Thanks for joining in. Hello, Abhishek. Indians love food. There is possibly no other country that may have such a vast spread of preparations than in India, arguably. In a minute or so, can you reveal to the listeners what did you set out to achieve in this cover package and what was the overall brief that you guys would have discussed among the editors? We cover the food and beverage sector quite regularly in our magazine. We profile people, personalities. We write about trends. But there is a lot more happening in the F&B industry. We just had a very informal sort of brainstorming session on what we saw happening around us. Like a lot of other people, we in the newsroom are very interested in food. And it is at a very personal level, whether it is what we are bringing for lunch or what we are having as an evening snack or the kind of delivery systems that all of us are using because a lot of people get food delivered to their offices and uh, we could see that the kind of food we would get delivered say four or five years ago and the kind of options that we have today are vastly different. So it is actually through personal experiences and anecdotes that we realized the shifts within the F&B industry that are taking place all around us. And we are consumers and we as consumers are approaching these changes in many ways and benefiting from them mostly. So the package was an attempt to bring together a lot of these ideas so that we could cover different aspects of the F&B industry and uh, sort of bring it all together in an interesting and engaging way. Let's start with the the consumer uh, point of view uh, in that you've done a a story on food and uh, how social media is influencing what people post and the fascination with uh, having to click a picture and put it up on Instagram. This is a true story. Just yesterday, uh, I was at Goa for some work and just before the waiter served me the sea bass, the fish, he asked me if I would like to click a picture before I start yes. eating that. Okay. So, and, yeah. and you write that Instagram has some 351 million posts, uh, I think, until August, just on food. So what is that about? And how, uh, from the consumer point of view, what explains that sudden spike, whether in India or elsewhere? A couple of years ago, I had done a different story, which was related to food photography. That is when I had sort of discovered this world of Instagrammers who do only food photography for Instagram. And they're not professional photographers by any stretch of imagination, but they do make a living out of this. So that kind of got me thinking about how Instagram as a platform has started affecting and seriously influencing the way we eat. I'm not very active on social media, but I can see people around me, like as you mentioned about your experience in Goa, I barely go to a restaurant and not see people photographing their food without before eating it. And uh, it has happened to me that I'm just waiting to eat my food, but my friends are photographing it. 
I mean, those who do it for them, it is something really exciting and something that they love doing. And for those who don't do it, it's probably quite irritating and they just can't understand what's happening. You know, why people behave like that. You interviewed Pooja Dhingra, uh, a, yes. a pastry chef, and you quote her, which is quite an interesting line where she says, when you enter a pastry shop, uh, you first eat with your eyes and the same emotion applies to food photographs. That's absolutely how it works. And I have also uh, quoted the national creative head of JWT. So he also mentions about how, well, the social media itself is a voyeuristic medium. We love to see what other people are doing and we love to show what we are doing. Now, food has come into this picture because now food is super cool. I mean, whether it's a vada pao you're eating at a roadside stall or whether it's some gourmet salad that you're having at a five-star restaurant, it's always cool. And people are very sort of enthusiastic about showing their good luck and their good taste. This is to quote the JWT creative head that, oh, look, I have good taste in food or, you know, look how lucky I am that I'm sitting in this fantastic ambience and having this fantastic day. The number of filters that you have on these social media makes an average photographer look a professional one. And so technology also has a big uh, role to play. Absolutely. I mean, those who are making money, they probably most of them probably don't even have a camera. The phone has become the camera and anybody with a slightly high quality phone believes that it is as good as professional photography. That is a different debate altogether. So let's not get there. But it's also a fact that food is a subject that makes for great photography from time immemorial when even before photography, people would paint food. So that's how still life was born. You know, the still life paintings of baskets of bright fruits. You know, that's how it started. So humans have always been fascinated with the colors and textures and shapes of the food that they eat. So photography is an extension of that. And food, frankly, even dal chawal can look fabulous on your plate. Yeah, you just have yellow dal, you have white rice and you have two green chilies on the yellow dal. And that's it. That's all you need. We are recording this at one thirty, right in the middle of lunch. And uh, I'm, I'm oh, yes. <laughs> Yes, that, that's the next thing on our plate, perhaps after this podcast. And I think all, you know it couldn't have come at a better time. This uh, interest in food for businesses. We've got a flush of food delivery outfits, Swiggy, uh, Uber Eats, and a few others. But the story that your colleagues have done, uh, they talk about how restaurants are calling for a detox, and that yes. food tech platforms, uh, to quote, have created a generation of discount addicts. How do you think this will pan out in the near future? Well, there has to be a balance between everything. And I guess where food tech aggregators are concerned, it is also a fact that restaurants claim that they are bearing the brunt of very deep discounts. And that not only do these buy one, get one, you know, one plus one, two plus two kind of offers, not only is it um, a financial burden on them, but a lot of high-end restaurants that value their brand They believe that it is eroding their brand value. And whereas the smaller restaurants, it is hitting them financially because they have to foot part of the discount bill themselves. Oh, is that right? Because I wondered if the venture capitalists are funding these companies so much that they are bleeding themselves. And it's a bit of a a good run that the restaurants have because they would otherwise not have the opportunity to serve to that consumer, which now is possible via these uh, outfits. It doesn't work that way, does it? The venture capitalists have invested in the aggregators. 
the restaurants have signed up with these aggregators of course it's something that they've willingly done now if you read our story you will um, understand how this uh, membership to schemes such as Zomato Gold for example have panned out what was kind of promised to the restaurants initially and then how it grew and how it has covered a very large number of restaurants today it is not something that is exclusive and applicable only to a handful of restaurants but it's applicable to a vast number of restaurants now yes of course the restaurants signed up to it it's not that they were in the dark about how it works but i guess after a certain amount of time they realized that uh, they are kind of at the receiving end of it yeah so that's what seems to have happened over the last couple of years or so if we switch gears and move into the kitchen you have a couple of stories there as well where how inventive chefs in india are trying to experiment with cuisines and how it is working on occasions and there are some hilarious examples where chefs have tried to match one food with the other and it just doesn't work yes it's something again that we would talk among ourselves and talk to our friends and we realized that a lot of consumers are getting rather tired of so called innovation then we thought of exploring this a bit and talking to the chefs and seeing what exactly it is all about what we see is that there is genuine innovation there is experimentation uh, but there has to be some thought behind it you know so rather than simply marrying two different and very disparate flavors and then calling it innovation so you know one my own experience i've been to a pretty well known restaurant and i asked for a whiskey cocktail and it was served to me in a copper glass I frankly thought it was nimbu pani I almost sent it back then I was told no that's my cocktail now fact is that like we were talking about earlier you first consume a food or drink with your eyes and when you order a whiskey cocktail you expect it to be in a certain kind of glass now when you have a copper lota sitting in front of you the problem is that the copper glass it is copper is a fantastic conductor of heat so what happens is the cocktail warms up much much faster than it would in a glass obviously you know it's a gimmick of trying to present a cocktail in a copper glass but without knowing that how fast it's going to warm up i once had beer served in a with in something that resembled a fish bowl <laughs> and yeah i mean i don't even know how to hold it because it doesn't have a handle that a beer mug should have so you know and then you start wondering what exactly am i doing taking it a little, little too far perhaps uh, these some of these restaurants <laughs> and, and 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 just concluding uh, this with a very important story that you have written about food production to quote from your story the health of the planet and that of humans have always been inextricably entwined but uh, never have they faced the strains they do now and this you write uh, in the context of how farmers irrigation if you look around ourselves uh, at what is happening in the world there are two very broad developments taking place one is of climate change there are changing rain patterns there are changing heat patterns the other trend that is taking place is a massively increasing population now we will be the most populous country in the world very soon there will be more and more mouths to feed you have a limited amount of land to grow food on erratic weather patterns uh, declining rainfall all of these factors affecting the amount of food being produced we have to go forward with these two developments how do you live with the two so that was the idea behind researching this article on food security 
And what I discovered is that um, India produces more than enough to feed everyone. Farming practices and farming techniques may not be perfect everywhere. The legacy of the Green Revolution has affected farming in our country in a lot of positive ways. It has also affected our country in some negative ways. And the story kind of explores that. And it talks about how there are groups of people at various levels who are trying to reverse these negative effects of the Green Revolution and ensure food security. So it's not about whether we grow enough or not. It's about how to grow enough, but in a sustainable way so that we can keep growing enough 50 years, 100 years into the future. But I think it's a very important story given the backdrop. I think there was a European Commission study which put the number of boreholes in India to more than 20 million, up from a few thousands in the 1960s, and that pumps some 230 billion cubic meters of groundwater, which uh, could be saved if uh, we could have basic uh, techniques like groundwater harvesting or building check dams instead of uh, you know investing heavily in uh, grand scheme projects. Uh, uh, so, so in, in the interest of time, I'm, I'm afraid I'll have to wrap this up, but if you have any parting thoughts. Yeah, sure. I think I had started my social media story. I mean, this is not to plug my own story, but I think it's kind of representative of how we all feel about food. It's uh, a snippet from the movie called Ratatouille from Pixar. Basically, it's something that relates to the memories that we have of food. And all of us have food memories. The food that we ate as children in our homes with our families, food that we had with our friends while we were growing up. So food is something that forms a very integral part of our lives, not just where nourishment and health is concerned, but where our memories and sentiments are concerned as well. So it's very important, and I feel, that we become more aware of the role that it actually plays in our lives in every way and that we enjoy it, yes, but we also value it. Thank you very much, Jasodhara. It's a good time to end it on that note. Have a good lunch, by the way. <laughs> you too, Abhish. You too. <laughs> Thank you. And, and okay. all listeners, you know where to get this podcast on ForbesIndia.com and on iTunes. And to have someone call you for a Forbes India subscription, message Forbes to 51818.